Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes murder, violence, and discussions of anti-Semitism and racism that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. At 6 a.m. on April 20, 1985, 33-year-old Carrie Noble was awoken by a loud banging on his cabin door. He was the second in command of the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, and hoped this summons was important. As Carrie fumbled for his glasses in the early morning light, his wife Kay got up to see who was there at such an early hour. When Kerry got out of bed a minute later, he found one of the group's many guards standing in his living room. Snipers, the man yelled, all around us. He told Kerry that some other guards had stumbled upon an FBI sniper and ran back to the compound to warn everyone. Overnight, over 200 law enforcement officers from the Arkansas State Troopers, the FBI, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms had surrounded their compound. Kerry headed straight to the house of their leader, James Ellison. When Kerry got there, he realized he was one of the last to arrive. All of Ellison's most fanatic followers were already there dressed in camouflage, loading their weapons, and making battle plans. One man proudly waved his gun in the air and proclaimed he was looking forward to teaching the feds a lesson on Hitler's birthday. Kerry grabbed a hold of Ellison and begged him to talk to the federal agents and avoid a senseless firefight. But Ellison angrily dismissed Kerry. He said if this was the beginning of the Second American Revolution, then he was happy to lead it. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're continuing our deep dive into the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord and its extremist leader, James Ellison. Last week, we analyzed how Ellison's increasingly violent and racist teachings turned his once peaceful commune into a right-wing paramilitary organization. This week, we'll explore the acts of terror they committed in an attempt to initiate the Second American Revolution and topple the United States government. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. By the beginning of 1980, James Ellison had convinced his followers that the government was run by the Antichrist and that Jewish people were the children of Satan. Ellison's sermons brainwashed his followers into blaming ethnic minorities for America's corruption and believing white people were God's chosen race. Ellison said the group couldn't wait for the Lord to judge America's sinfulness. They were called to wage a holy war against the United States and punish the evildoers. In the summer of 1980, 40-year-old Ellison gave a sermon in which he compared himself to Jesus Christ and commanded everyone at Zarephath Horeb to follow his word like they would God's. This was a blatant power grab. Previously, Ellison had to get many of his decisions approved by a board of elders. However, Ellison wanted to take total control and the other members wholeheartedly supported it. For most, it's hard to imagine believing Ellison's lies, but his followers found his anti-government message comforting and vindicating. For the white working class members of Zarephath Horeb, the 70s were more than just a time of shifting cultural values. They also had to endure a severe economic recession in the latter half of the decade, which made them feel forgotten by the government. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Psychologist Michael Bader explains that when people feel abandoned by the government, they'll band together to reject and demean others, all the while they're trying to deal with the pain, powerlessness, and lack of empathy that they experience in their social lives. By blaming ethnic minorities and the Antichrist government, Ellison gave his followers an outlet for their disillusionment. With this new self-appointed divine authority, Ellison's first order of business was converting Zarephath Horeb's remaining legal semi-automatic weapons into illegal fully automatic weapons. Next, the men constructed a sprawling complex of houses and buildings called Silhouette City. Ellison wanted the members of Zarephath Horeb to learn how to fight in urban settings to prepare for the government's fall. Member Randall Raider ran training sessions throughout the day, practicing maneuvers and throwing grenades into burning cars and buildings. To help reinforce Zarephath Horeb's bigoted beliefs, they used targets of police officers with the Jewish Star of David as their badges. By early 1981, Ellison decided to change their name to align with their God-given mission of violence. Ellison came up with the name The Covenant, The Sword, and The Arm of the Lord, otherwise known as the CSA. The Covenant referred to their commitment to overthrow the government. The Sword referred to God's judgment, and the Arm referred to the group itself, the people who were meant to administer God's judgment. At this time, the CSA had around 60 members. To recruit new followers, Ellison took Carey and some other men with him to speak at various survivalist seminars and gun shows throughout the country. 
In the summer of 1981, Ellison and Carrie were invited to speak at a survivalist seminar in Michigan. While they were there, a Ku Klux Klan leader gave Ellison a 30-gallon barrel of cyanide. Klan members told Ellison he could dump the cyanide into the water supply systems of major cities and kill the hundreds of thousands of its sinful residents. All told, by the end of the recruitment process, Ellison had gained the cyanide, new members, and spread his message to hundreds of new people. This recruitment activity concerned the local law enforcement of Marion County in Arkansas, where the CSA was located. The officers kept a close eye on them, and some even harassed CSA members just so they could prove who was in charge. At one point, an officer pulled Kerry over, grabbed him by the nose, and dared him to retaliate. But Kerry didn't fall for the trap. Instead, he returned to the CSA compound and told Ellison about the matter. Ellison responded by having armed CSA members stalk the offending officer wherever he went, including when he returned home. As the officer ate dinner with his family, CSA snipers laid on a hill near the house and practiced dry firing. They removed all ammunition from their guns, set their sights on the officer as he moved around his house, and pulled the trigger. One night, a CSA sniper called the officer on his home phone and said, instead of lying on the couch, you ought to go see First Blood and learn the lesson well. The sniper was referring to the first Rambo movie, in which Sylvester Stallone plays a Vietnam veteran who destroys a town and attacks its corrupt sheriff. Fearing for his family's safety, the officer immediately notified his chief, who approached Carrie the next day. The chief asked what he could do to defuse the situation, and Carrie responded, All the trooper needs to do is leave us alone. If he continues to harass us for no reason, then we've got a major problem. This veiled threat forced the chief to give in. For a year, he ordered his officers to stay away from the CSA. The victory over law enforcement only inflated Ellison's ego. He believed that he now had the police under his control, and he wanted more people to admire his power. To show off to other survivalist and paramilitary groups, Ellison decided to hold a convention at the CSA compound in October 1982. He invited members of the KKK, Aryan Brotherhood, and Christian Patriots Defense League to the CSA's 224-acre property. The convention was a huge success. Hundreds of people attended and heard Ellison preach his racist ideology. To capitalize on the event, Ellison had Kerry recruit more members during the conference. When Kerry asked one attendee why he wanted to join them, the man replied, the guns. You guys are the best paramilitary group in the country. Everybody expects you to start the war. This troubled Kerry. In the two years since Kerry proposed the name change and supported Ellison's mission of violence, he started to wonder if the CSA had become evil. The recruit's comment made Kerry realize he missed the old days when they were just the peaceful community of Zarephath Horeb. When Kerry shared his apprehension with Ellison, Ellison berated him for not wanting to bring in violent members who would help them win the war. At this point, Kerry realized that Ellison didn't want a congregation to guide. He wanted an army to lead. 
By the end of the conference, several individuals had joined the CSA, swelling their ranks to over 150 members. But their members dwindled as quickly as they'd grown. Days before the conference, a longtime member named Trent confessed that he committed a sin. He shared with the church elders that he betrayed his wife Annie by having an affair and that he needed forgiveness. Someone asked who the woman was, but Trent didn't answer. Instead, Ellison spoke up. He revealed to the congregation that his 14-year-old daughter was the one who had an affair with Trent. A deathly quiet fell over the members while Trent started to cry in shame. When Ellison and the elders settled the matter, they excommunicated Trent but allowed Annie and her children to stay with the CSA. The matter seemed resolved until Ellison approached the elders a few days later, claiming that God had told him to marry Trent's wife, Annie. Despite his God-given authority, the elders vehemently objected to the idea. Ellison was already married to the mother of his six children, Ollie. They expected Ellison to fight back, but he showed a surprising amount of restraint. He simply asked the elders to pray about it and revisit the issue a few weeks later. The elders agreed, but none of them expected to change their minds. When Ellison met the elders for the second time in late November, they still refused. Yet this time, Ellison didn't listen. To him, the elders were formalities, and he used his authority to approve his union with Annie. This created an uproar among his followers, and many left over the next seven months. Those who abandoned the CSA viewed Ellison's polygamy as sinful and proof that he wasn't appointed by God. When the dust settled in the summer of 1983, the CSA membership dwindled from 150 to only 50 loyal followers. The remainder either supported the marriage or were too scared to leave, and the CSA held the wedding ceremony on June 12, 1983. During the service, Ellison's first wife, Ollie, gave her blessing over the marriage, saying, Now, in the sight of this congregation, as seven months ago I did, I give the release to my husband to take the woman for his wife. I will be glad in this and rejoice. But Ollie was anything but glad. Members of the CSA noticed that Annie's presence in Ollie's household wreaked havoc on her physical and mental health. She often looked like she'd been crying and on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Ellison was either oblivious to this or deliberately ignored her pain and seemed to be in great spirits. Despite the controversy his marriage caused, he had gotten his two wives, the weapons, and the momentum to start a war. Now, he just needed a target. Coming up, Ellison begins waging war on the government. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone, a soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with. Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the Parcast limited series, Criminal Couples. 
If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By 1983, 43-year-old James Allison was fully prepared to send his men to war with the government. He just needed the right time and place to strike. Luckily, that perfect moment came when Ellison heard the story of a 63-year-old World War II veteran named Gordon Call. Like Ellison's group, the CSA, Call adhered to the racist ideology of the Christian identity movement. Call claimed that the, quote, Jewish-controlled federal banking system used his money to support the Illuminati. Because of this, he refused to pay his taxes. In February 1983, two U.S. Marshals approached Call's residence with a warrant for his arrest. Call opened fire, wounding one and killing the other. As Call escaped, he reportedly approached the wounded Marshal and shot him twice in the head. He vanished until June 3, 1983, when law enforcement discovered Call hiding on a farm just a few miles down the road from the CSA. Knowing how dangerous he was, the U.S. Marshals sent some of their men and a local sheriff to surround the home and take Call by surprise. But Call was ready for them. He opened fire while the agents approached the home. They responded with fury, and Call died in the ensuing firefight. Although Call wasn't part of the CSA, Ellison viewed Call as a martyr who died fighting the minority-run government. Ellison believed the CSA either needed to avenge their fallen brother or lose credibility. Soon after Call's death, Ellison called his top leadership together to plan the Second American Revolution and topple the Antichrist government. The CSA's first act of terror took place on August 9, 1983. Late that summer night, Ellison and another member drove out of state to the only gay church in Springfield, Missouri, the Metropolitan Community Church. Ellison poured gasoline through the front door mail slot of the church gym and then set it on fire. As the smoke started to rise, he and his partner raced back to the car and sped off unseen into the night. Ellison hoped to read in the newspaper the following day that the church had been engulfed in flames, but that wasn't the case. Although they succeeded in starting the fire, the flames didn't spread. 
No one died, and the only damage the church suffered was a blackened floor. Ellison's attempt to burn down the church didn't succeed, but another member of the CSA soon committed a much more serious crime. In November of 1983, Richard Wayne Snell, one of the CSA's most fanatical members, led a group robbery of a local pawn shop. While the men destroyed the store to take its valuables, Snell erroneously identified the owner as Jewish and shot him point blank. When Snell and the rest of his crew got back to the CSA compound, the getaway driver was torn with guilt. He told Ellison what happened, but instead of getting angry, Ellison commended Snell for killing the man. Encouraged by this, Snell approached Ellison a few weeks later and suggested they blow up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma. Snell had studied the facility and realized it would be the perfect building to attack and start their war. It housed 550 government workers including employees of the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. But that wasn't the best part for Snell. The Murrah Building also held America's Kids, a large daycare center for the children of the government staff. To him, attacking such a vulnerable group would be the perfect way to start the second American Revolution. Ellison agreed to Snell's plan and said, we need something with a large body count to make the government sit up and take notice. Ellison chose one of his followers, Kent Yates, a Green Beret from Vietnam, to build rockets that they could launch from their trucks and bring the building down. When Carrie and a few others asked them to stop and think about the children, Ellison responded, there are no innocents in war. The sins of the fathers are visited upon the children. Yates was on track to have the rockets built by early December 1983, but things didn't go according to plan. As Yates assembled the rockets, some of the materials detonated in his hands, severely burning him and putting the entire plan in jeopardy. Men like Snell urged Ellison to carry out the attack once Yates healed, but Ellison surprised them when he refused. He claimed that the explosion was a sign from God that the attack shouldn't happen yet. Carrie was relieved the plan had failed, but just as he thought everything would be fine, Ellison proposed another plan. This time, Ellison suggested that they break into the homes of three of Arkansas's highest-ranking government officials and assassinate every man, woman, and child. Ellison set the date of the attack for the day after Christmas, December 26th. When the date finally came, Ellison, Carey, and several others piled into a van they had stolen, while Snell followed behind in a smaller car. Carey later said that he hated the idea of participating in the murders, but knew he couldn't openly defy Ellison. Carey hoped that when they did attack the homes, he could somehow help their targets escape. As Ellison sat in the back of the van, he noticed the driver swerving all over the road. Ellison told him to stop driving so erratically, but the driver was so nervous that he couldn't control the van. He struggled steering around a curve and crashed almost directly into a pickup truck. It was a relatively minor crash, but bad enough to ruin the van's engine. After shaking off the shock, Carrie jogged over to check on the couple in the pickup truck. While Carrie distracted the couple and waved for help, his accomplices put the guns into the second car, when the highway patrol eventually arrived, 
Ellison worried they would run the vehicle identification number and realize it was stolen. But for some reason, the officers didn't. They simply took reports from everyone involved and drove off. One of the would-be attackers asked Ellison if he wanted to carry on with the plan, but Ellison declined, saying that God had yet again told them to postpone. They returned to the CSA frustrated. It had been almost a year since the CSA had sworn to avenge Call's death, but they still hadn't started the Second American Revolution. In some ways, Kerry was relieved. On one hand, he'd started questioning Ellison's sanity and didn't really want the CSA to go to war. On the other hand, he was still desperate for Ellison's approval. This desire prompted Kerry to propose a new plan to Ellison in the summer of 1984. Kerry told Ellison about an adult film store about five hours north of them in Kansas City, Missouri. Kerry's plan was to pack a briefcase full of C4 explosives, leave it in the shop, and blow it up. Then he planned to drive to a park, which was a local hangout for gay couples, and shoot anyone who was there. Ellison gave the plan his blessing, and Kerry left that weekend. When Kerry arrived at the film store, the owner stopped him at the door and wouldn't allow him to take the briefcase inside. The owner was afraid that Kerry would try to steal the movies, but offered to let Kerry leave the briefcase with him. Kerry declined. He feared the owner would get suspicious and open the case if Kerry just left it with him. He walked out and decided to initiate the second part of his plan. Kerry drove to the nearby park that night and circled the area several times looking for victims. But for whatever reason, no one was there. Exhausted from the drive and disappointed that he'd have to return to Ellison unsuccessful, Kerry parked his car and fell asleep. On Sunday morning, Kerry came up with a new plan. He remembered that before leaving on his mission, another member of the CSA had told Kerry about a gay church nearby. Not wanting to return to Ellison empty-handed, Kerry decided to leave the bomb there. Kerry had no clue what to expect as he walked in during the Sunday morning service. Ellison's teaching had made him extremely prejudiced towards the gay community, and he fully expected to walk in on an orgy. As he sat in the back row and started to arm the bomb, something stopped him. He looked up and watched people embrace each other and raise their arms to praise Jesus. He realized there was nothing disturbing about the service at all. If anything, it looked similar to the worship services he'd been a part of in the early days of Zarephath Horeb. With the bomb still in his lap, Kerry felt conflicted. The people of the outside world weren't evil and corrupt. They were good, loving, and even the gay people he had condemned worshipped the same way he did. As he realized this, Kerry finally made the decision to leave the CSA. Clinical psychologist Morgan Rousselet helps explain why Kerry may have decided to escape the CSA. In a study, she said, reasons for leaving a cult include acknowledgement of contradictions between group doctrine and events, personal conflict with the doctrine, and disillusionment with the cult. With this epiphany, Kerry got up with the bomb and left the church. When he got back to the CSA, Kerry made up an excuse about why the plan didn't work, but Ellison saw right through him. Ellison screamed at Kerry and accused him of wanting to be just like the sinful people they were trying to destroy, then walked away. 
Even though Carrie knew Ellison was a power-hungry manipulator and wanted to leave the CSA, it was much easier said than done. In the same study conducted by Rousselet, she also identified that it can take up to 16 months between the first desire to leave the cult and the actual departure. The social precariousness of members acts as an important barrier to leaving the cult. In other words, Carrie was probably afraid of leaving the cult, which had been his home for the past seven years. But if Carrie knew what was going to happen in the months to come, he would have probably chosen to abandon the CSA as soon as possible. Coming up, the CSA finally gets their confrontation with the government. Now back to the story. On June 30th, 1984, Richard Wayne Snell, the CSA follower who shot and killed a pawn shop owner, was driving to Oklahoma with a car full of illegal weapons. He was outside DeQueen, Arkansas, when he saw the flashing red lights of an Arkansas state trooper behind him. Snell pulled over and prepared to show his license. But when the black officer, Lewis Bryant, approached his car, Snell panicked. In full view of everyone else on the highway, he shot Bryant twice. As the officer fell to the ground, Snell sped off, trying to flee the state and return to Oklahoma. Moments after the attack, his wife and children found him unconscious. They were on their way to meet him for lunch when they noticed his car and pulled over. Lewis's wife tried reviving him, but her husband died in her arms. Upon hearing a witness's report, state troopers set up a roadblock and caught Snell as he tried to leave the state. Instead of surrendering, Snell got out of his car and opened fire. Troopers returned a volley and shot Snell seven times. Snell was rushed to the hospital. He lost a lot of blood and his heart stopped twice, but the doctors revived him both times. After weeks of recovery, authorities summoned Snell to court. Ellison was apparently summoned to court as a character witness for Snell, but Ellison never showed. He feared the courts, and going to Snell's trial would be like walking into the belly of the beast. By the end of it, Snell was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death by lethal injection. After Lewis Bryant's funeral on July 5, 1984, the governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, promised to crack down on paramilitary groups in the state and investigate the CSA. Clinton's promise mobilized the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, also known as the ATF, to begin secretly monitoring the CSA for criminal activity. Toward the end of the summer, they still hadn't found enough evidence to build a case against the CSA, but they didn't need to. Ellison's choice to not show up to court for Snell's trial in July was all the ATF needed to arrest him. In August 1984, Ellison, Carey, and some other CSA members were visiting a contact of theirs a few miles away. Suddenly, one of Ellison's men burst into the room shouting that Ellison needed to flee because ATF agents were approaching. Ellison ran out the back and disappeared into the forest. Carrie met the agents at the door and asked what it was about. The agents informed Carrie they had a warrant for Ellison's arrest. They explained that since Ellison hadn't shown up for Snell's hearing, he was wanted for contempt of the court. 
Carrie told the agents that Ellison was hiding in the woods behind the house and volunteered to find him. Carrie feared the agents would scare Ellison and provoke him to do something violent. After the agents gave him permission, Carrie found Ellison, brought him back to the agents, and they took Ellison to court. Although afraid of the courts, Ellison appeared in front of a jury and defended himself with the same charisma he used during his sermons. He claimed that he had legally tried to postpone his appearance at Snell's hearing, but was too busy taking care of his congregation. Swayed by his story, the jury released Ellison. To the CSA, this was a sign that God was on their side in the war against the government. But the coming months sorely tested their belief that God was on their side. From 1983 to 1984, the CSA plotted several acts of terror in an attempt to start a war with the American government. However, something stopped them every time they tried to carry it out. By late 1984, members were even more anxious to incite violence. They continued planning an attack, but the government was quickly closing the net around them. In early April, James Ellison's followers noticed a lot of men in suits and government cars in the nearby town. 44-year-old Ellison was paranoid that the feds were going to attack their compound in the next few days and warned his followers to prepare themselves. The pressure apparently became too much for a CSA affiliate, David Tate. He drove into town with a stash of illegal weapons and shot two state troopers, killing one of them. He tried escaping on foot, but other agents quickly apprehended him. The trooper's death was the last straw for law enforcement. They connected the illegal weapons found in Tate's car to Ellison and obtained another warrant for his arrest. By the night of April 19, 1985, Arkansas state troopers, along with federal agents from the FBI and ATF, surrounded the CSA compound. The siege that Ellison always feared and prepared for had begun. The following morning on April 20th, two CSA guards were patrolling the perimeter when they spotted some of the agents. They ran back to the main living area and raised the alarm. When Ellison found out, he gathered all the leaders in his home to plan a counterattack. As they strategized, he told Kerry to stall the FBI and get more time. Kerry obeyed and cautiously walked down the dirt road from the compound to the troopers. After getting frisked, Kerry sat down with an FBI negotiator and told them the CSA was willing to work out a deal. Kerry said Ellison needed 24 hours to decide what to do. The negotiator was reluctant to give the CSA so much time at first, but they eventually agreed to Kerry's terms because he hoped this would lower the hostility of the cult. Ellison was thrilled when Kerry shared the news with him. While Kerry had been away, Ellison prophesied to his men that God would tell the other paramilitary groups of the CSA's plight. They would come within 24 hours to ambush the officers and break the siege. But by the next day, help hadn't arrived. Yet this didn't discourage Ellison's men. They believed it was a sign from God that they should take matters into their own hands and attack the FBI themselves. Just as they were getting stirred into a frenzy, Ellison stepped in. Instead of attacking, he told them to continue preparing their defensive strategy. The FBI had made no sign of aggression toward the CSA, but Ellison was convinced they were secretly planning something. In an effort to discourage this supposed assault, 
the CSA blasted praise music through their speakers and tried convincing them to leave the side of the Antichrist government and join God's army. This had no effect at all. By Sunday morning, April 21st, the allotted 24 hours were up. All the CSA members, including Ellison, realized that help wouldn't come. As they came to see how hopeless their situation actually was, Ellison told his men to destroy some of their illegal weapons. He spitefully said it would be nice if the feds found nothing illegal. Then their siege and arrest warrant would backfire. The following day, Monday, April 22nd, after the worst of the items were destroyed, Ellison felt safe enough to talk with the FBI negotiator face to face. After the men spoke, Ellison agreed to surrender on one condition. Wanting to look good for the news reporters there, he asked to return to the CSA in order to comb his hair. The negotiator was baffled by Ellison's vanity, but kept his shock to himself and allowed Ellison to return. After combing his hair, Ellison upheld his end of the deal and ordered his men to stand down. Miraculously, after a four-day standoff, Ellison and the rest of the CSA surrendered without bloodshed. When all the men marched down from their compound, they sang praise songs in defiance of the government, except for Carrie, who was sobbing with relief. The following day, Carrie and the rest of the men were questioned while the agents searched the CSA compound for their weapons and other illegal items. The agents discovered a total of 74 assault weapons, 50 grenades, a 30-gallon drum of cyanide, 86 explosives, and an armored pickup truck with a World War II anti-aircraft gun mounted in the bed. After the contraband was collected, Carrie and Ellison were placed in the same prison cell at a local county jail while they waited for their trial. Altogether, Ellison and Carrie faced possible decades in prison. Adding to his stress, Carrie also had to endure the entire spectrum of Ellison's grief at being arrested. Ellison started off raving about how he'd befriended the ATF agents who interrogated him. He then shared that he wanted to exchange information for his freedom and become an informer for the FBI. Like a boy fantasizing about being an action hero, Ellison told Carrie he was going to be the Rambo of the feds. Ellison's mood swung drastically from giddiness to crying uncontrollably over the fact that he'd failed the CSA. At other times, he desperately tried to convince Carrie to plot a way to escape out of their small jail. But none of those were Ellison's wildest ideas. In August 1985, after being in jail for four months, Ellison asked Carrie to tell the federal authorities that everything the CSA had done was all a part of Carrie's grand scheme. When Carrie refused, Ellison screamed at him for betraying their cause. According to psychiatrist James P. Frosch, this is typical behavior for narcissists. When disappointed, their ego can't accept that their grandiose fantasies have not come to fruition. Frosch writes that instead of grieving, narcissists experience a repetitive cycle of idealization, disillusionment, and new idealization that can dominate their lives. Carrie endured this cycle of grief from Ellison in the confines of their cell for 100 days. It got so bad that Carrie's trial was an event he'd looked forward to rather than one he dreaded. However, the trial took a turn for the worse. 
the judge blamed Carey for planning many of the CSA's attacks and sentenced Carey to five years for conspiracy and gun law violations. When Carey went back to his cell, he begged Ellison to clarify things with the judge, but Ellison refused and said, it'll do you good. That was the last time Ellison and Carey saw each other. The next day, authorities took Carey to serve his sentence. Ultimately, Carey served 26 months in jail and got out early on parole. When he was released, he and his wife Kay picked up the pieces of their lives and moved back to Texas. While living there, Carey consulted the FBI in their efforts to identify and peacefully detain cults. Ellison's story isn't as bright. He went to court and received a 20-year sentence for conspiracy to possess unlawful weapons, numerous gun violations, and racketeering. While in prison, Ellison's two wives, Ollie and Annie, accused him of physical and emotional abuse and left him for good. However, Ellison was released 10 years early in April of 1995 for testifying against other white supremacist associates. After jail, he went to live with another right-wing extremist group in Arkansas called Elohim City, where he reportedly resides to this day. Despite the peaceful end to the siege, Carey's reform and Ellison's loss of power, the legacy of the CSA still remains in infamy. Exactly 10 years after the siege on the CSA, on April 19, 1995, another right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, blew up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, the same building Ellison wanted to blow up 12 years earlier. McVeigh packed a moving truck with 4,800 pounds of highly combustible fertilizer and detonated the bomb at 9.02 a.m. The resulting explosion killed 168 men, women, and children, injured 680 others, and damaged 324 buildings within a 16-block radius. Although McVeigh wasn't a member of the CSA and never confessed to meeting Ellison or Snell, it's almost certain they knew each other. McVeigh was reportedly involved in another paramilitary group located in Oklahoma, which Ellison visited often. It's highly likely McVeigh heard of Ellison's plan and decided to carry it out on his own. Although Ellison was never convicted of murder, he got the high body count he wanted by catalyzing the worst domestic terrorist attack in U.S. history. The CSA's influence was deadly indeed. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on James Ellison and the CSA, amongst the many sources we used, we found Carrie Noble's book, Tabernacle of Hate, Seduction into Right-Wing Extremism, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. 
This episode of Cults was written by Robert Heckert, with writing assistance by Giles Hovseff, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.